This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is brought to you by Fish Flight Entertainment. This episode was sponsored in part by listeners like you. Join our Patreon community and receive early access to episodes, bonus content, stickers, buttons, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash YVR Screen Scene Podcast. This episode contains frank and graphic talk about suicide. If you're thinking about suicide or are worried about a friend or a loved one, the Canada Suicide Prevention Service is available 24-7-365 at 1-833-456-4566. That's 1-833-456-4566. You can also find links to suicide prevention and mental health support services in the footnotes for this episode. You're not alone. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. I'm your host, Sabrina Furminger. My mission is to pull back the curtain on Vancouver's film and television industry and expose its beating heart, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom style, by getting deep and down and a little dirty with the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work. Capital T, capital W. Life is built on a foundation of death. It's inevitable. We celebrate births and birthdays and rarely acknowledge the reality that's lurking just over the horizon. You're going to die one day. I'm going to die one day. And everyone we love is going to die too. What happens when we actually acknowledge this inevitability, this elephant in the room? What happens when those of us who are very much alive give voice to death and stare it down? Talk about not just the end, but the lead up to the end and the aftermath for those of us who are left behind. Liz Levine is a film producer, filmmaker, journalist, and as of this January, a published author. Her book is Nobody Ever Talks About Anything But The End, and it's a memoir, a memoir, about the years before and after her sister died by suicide and her best friend died from cancer. Using the alphabet as a guide, Liz moves readers through an array of complicated emotions and nuanced topics related to death, mental illness, relationships, grieving, and life. And there's humor, a lot of it, and a lot of tears too. Nobody ever talks about anything but the end is somehow at once a difficult and smooth read. Difficult because, yes, it's hard to contemplate pain and despair and mental illness and suicide and cancer. And smooth because the journey through the book is somehow life-affirming. You learn that you can still live your life, live a good life, in the presence of death. Liz Levine, welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. I'm really happy to have you here as well. Um... I congratulated you on the book before we, we hit record, and uh, I thanked you for writing it. And um, and then we laughed about something, and you and I'm like, oh, it feels weird to laugh. And you're like, well, humor and suicide, I totally nailed it in the book, and you did. You know, so I, I'm, I'm curious, like, why do you think it's so hard to talk about death? You know, it's an interesting question. Woody Allen has a quote that I won't get perfectly, but essentially says we all spend our entire lives running away from the same truth, Mm. which is that we're all going to die. And I think 
an acceptance of it leaves a lot of space in our lives for living. Yeah. As opposed to being focused on dying. Yeah. Um, well, let's begin with the end, the end of the title. Uh, do you think that there's ever an end to grief that comes from the loss of a loved one? No, I mean, I think that my mother said it best, the pain never lessens, it just happens less often. Yeah. Uh, so it's a nonlinear experience to me, grief. And uh, if you can let it be that and not feel that it's something you have to get through and come out on the other side, it again circles back to that idea that there's a lot of space for life and laughter in between those moments. Yeah. Okay, so I, I think before we talk about what kind of book you set out to write and the experience of creating the book, we ha we have to talk about about your sister and and also your friend. Let's let's start with um with Tamara. Is it Tamara? Tamara. It's Tamara. Tamara. Yeah. So what what did she live with and uh, like what what was her life like? I mean, in many ways, her life was great. She was smart and articulate and well educated and successful popular in her own way with her own group of friends but yeah. you know obviously lived for years with a very severe mental illness that is slippery and hard to grab onto like little wisps of a dandelion Ugh. because the stories come out wrong or something feels untrue for a moment and then I guess your brain rebalances and then is normalized and I think for medical professionals, for my family, for a lot of people, it took years to diagnose her. Also because she was very smart yeah, and could manipulate a lot of people and a lot of systems into believing that she was not an urgent case. And when we talk about um, the intelligence in your family, I mean, let's... let's state what your parents you know do for their their livings right your yeah, my father's an entertainment lawyer yeah. my mother is one of the best child psychologists in the country and the head of psychotherapy ontario right You're, so and like, like let's sit with that <laughs> for a minute so you know we have we have one of the parents being you know uh, somebody who who works in this field and yet you know i would want to say how do we how do we talk like maybe not the it's hard when it's your kid. It's hard when it's your kid who's sure. going through this, right? The cobbler's son never has new shoes, you know? Yes. We don't sort of identify our loved ones that way from any of our professional framework. It's like the director who's dating an actor who's yeah. like, that actor's brilliant, and everyone else is like, ugh, are yeah. they? <laughs> um, uh, it's hard when you're on the inside. You see the positives of the people you love and yeah. it was very easy to see Tamara as connected and intelligent and kind and generous she was all of those things yeah. and so or she can make you see or make some people see what she wanted them to see and and then I know that you you write about it in the book you have uh, you had a, a different experience with her a different relationship sure to her can you tell and she talk was the closest with my mother so she worked very hard to be on her best behavior mm which is what made it even more of a, an optical illusion and a hard thing to see. Yeah. You know, for me, I, I think I identified some of those traits young. And I went to the same school as her, and I spent all day with her, and yeah. I could see the reflection of her life and her peer group and the stories that had cracks in them from yeah. a very young age. And so it made me suspicious and made our relationship 
a little contentious. And then when I wasn't the person that she was closest to or had to behave the best with, I got some of the worst behavior yeah. that came out of her mental illness. I have a feeling we're going to go all over the place in kind yeah. of a nonlinear fashion uh, with this conversation. But, you know, I find it, I mean, often we have that, or at least in my experience, you know, somebody dies and then we, we kind of slightly rewrite. I mean, I think you talk about this in the book as well. You 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 change how you see them. You can rewrite history and, and, you know, put a kind of a gloss all over it. But you haven't done that with this book. You're not rewriting your or at least as far as I can tell, your mm-hmm. relationship, and mm-hmm. you're also kind of like exposing maybe the truth of some of her relationships with other, with other people. Like what what is that? What, what kind of feedback have you received from your family? What do they feel about this process of sharing? You know the the years leading up to her her death, and then the aftermath of her death with the world. You know, listen. I think interestingly, we're all very private people in my family, and this is brave of them. Yeah. I also think that they know that I've created something here that has value and is special, and they're really prepared to stand behind me and support it. Yeah. So um, your sister died by suicide in, yeah. in 2016, uh, and uh, you also had the experience, uh, I think, shortly before or how many when did Judson die he died 13 years before her. right so you know you the book kind of takes readers through the loss not only of your sister but also of your best friend as mm-hmm. well and mm-hmm. weaves it together in some kind of uncomfortable tapestry which is you know the experience of living with grief how was that loss of Judson different from the loss of Tamara um Cancer is a definable, identifiable illness. I know I'm not responsible for saving anybody with cancer. It's visual. You watch someone get skinnier and sicker and paler and die. So in that sense, the real distinction with Tamara is that one is a disease that you can label and see the progression of. You have time to say goodbye, to love, to forgive, all those things. Yeah. And the other is not. It's really invisible. Yeah. Um, I think it's still a, a it's still a degenerative illness though, right? Like it is, yeah. but you know, mental health can be a very invisible thing. And I think yeah. it's part of the reason why I chose to put these two losses side by each. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the other thing about losing Judson was we were in our twenties. Mm. And so there was a sense now in our 40s and as I lost my sister, you've been through loss. Your peers have been through loss. People have definitely lost grandparents, maybe lost parents and peers, and it becomes a more shared experience. But at 29, when your best friend has died, yeah. it is really hard for your peer group to be able to to support or understand that kind of loss. Do you think that it would your experience of either of those losses would have been different if like you were constantly if if we in our society were talking about death all the time you know as some kind of like well what it actually is which is an inevitability that you know we don't fear birth like why do we fear death or Mm -hmm. why do we like cast it into the shadows like do you think that if we as a society treated it in a different way we would grieve in a different way for sure I absolutely think that. I mean, we see customs all over the world that are more connected to death than us, that have different kind of ritualization, that 
sing and cry and weep in a sort of different public way. Yeah. You know, so the question about how we ritualize grief and, you know, what it means, we're a, a generation that has kind of been excused from loss. We're too young for war. Yeah. We're too young for the AIDS crisis. We're too young to have really seen our brothers and sisters by the hundreds of thousands die. Yeah. So the shared conversation around loss, especially in a sanitized cultural space that we have in North America, is really limited. It feels even weird. Like even just sitting here right now, and I feel like I can talk to you about it because I read your book and, you know, and yet like it's still there still feels something like I feel like I'm doing something that I shouldn't be right now. And I'm really confronting that. I mean, can have my own therapy session here but I'm really confronting the fact that like I we don't we don't talk about it you know and like how would life be different how would the experience of life be different if we were talking about that so let's get into talking about the book then Mm -hmm. so what kind of like why did you write this and like what kind of book did you set out to write you know, I didn't. Um, I guess about eight weeks after Tamara died, I went and did The Flame with Deb Williams, who created Mom's the yeah. Word. So can you can you tell our listeners what The Flame is for people who are outside of Vancouver? Yeah, it's a storytelling venue. It is the Canadian version of The Moth. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you get up, you tell a story that must be true, must be about you, and must be told in a few yeah. Very short minutes. True. You, a few. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I went and I did this with Deb and, you know, had sort of signed up before the loss. Oh. And when I got back to Vancouver in January, there it was. And I just thought I'm going to follow through and do this. And I told the Easter Bunny off the cuff at a, at a first go round with Deb. And that story had a lot of impact in the room. And yeah. I ended up typing it out, and Jonathan Kay at the Walrus ended up running a copy of the printed story a few months later, and that was really the place that the book started. Was there, and what was that experience of beginning to share that story with the world? Got my arms out with the world, grand gesture. But like, what, what was that? What was that like? And how did it change your grief and your grieving in in any kind of way? I mean, I think. It, I'd already been sharing the Judson loss for years at the point that Tamara had died. And I'd written a lot of the pieces that you see in the book about Judson and just sort of had put them in a bottom drawer. I think the story of Tamara is so shocking um, that mostly what you are dealing with is other people's shock. Yeah. Uh, and then I think shocked you know, that she that she died by suicide or the manner in which she died. Ma- or? You know, it is very rare for women to jump. Yeah. They most often pills, bathtubs, slightly subtler ways. So statistically, it's a very unique death. Yeah, it's highly traumatic. It's thirty floors onto a major street, <sighs> and these are details that have people taken aback. Yeah. in the moment that you tell them and and just I guess the act also of saying it out loud sharing it with other people you know you like the people might be sh- must be shocked that you are doing something that's taboo which is speak speaking about yeah well I definitely broke the room when I told the Easter Bunny story yeah um, there was definitely that sense and then you know I think I reference it in the book but at some point as people begin to hear about it, even if you don't tell them, there's what I call the cancer kid phenomenon, which is that every room you walk into, 
people tilt their head a bit sideways and they widen their eyes and they look at you like you have just come out of chemo with no hair and big sunken eyes like you're dying is yeah. the you know real experience of how other people like you have respond. the stench of death on you yeah yeah and it wasn't always me telling you know my brother and i felt very clear in the moments after we heard about her death that we were getting out in front of this as a mental health crisis as suicide as a space where language needed to change you you ask me about the language around death but i almost have stronger opinions about the language around mental health hmm. and so my brother published his obit right away on social media it was brilliant and people knew often before i could tell them yeah because it really was on social media and it you know happened in late november i went home for the funeral my brother published the obit and then i came back to whistler film festival because i was scheduled to moderate a couple of panels and by the time i got to whistler i was the kid whose sister had jumped yeah tilting heads <laughs> tilting like, heads yeah, yeah. god mm. there's no guidebook guidebook for how to to act in the in the aftermath is that something that you would like this book to to be like how, how would you like like people to interact with this book i mean you know it's built as a dictionary yeah and it's built that every story should be able to stand on its own and yeah. when you read them all together from A to Z, you also get a bigger narrative arc in there. Mm. But you get small ones. And I think, you know, someone asked me, is this self-help? And it's definitely not. But that doesn't mean that it's not helpful. Mm. And so I hope that there are stories or moments in there that either allow people to feel less alone, that they can see themselves reflected or helps them understand someone else in their life that yeah. they're dealing with. Um, you you mentioned just a few moments ago that you have even stronger opinions uh, about um, mental health. Uh, and uh, where are we failing in that in the conversation around mental well, health? Well, it, it's language. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've been asked, how would you revamp the mental health system? I, I have no idea. There are professionals. I, I love that people ask you that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There are definitely people more wow. qualified than I to have that conversation. But what I do know is every day of the week, I hear someone say, oh, that just makes me want to kill myself. Uh, oh, yeah. my God, if that happened to me, I'd just jump off a bridge. Uh, you know, they also make the self gesture of pulling a gun at yeah. their own head. Yeah. So we have all these references to suicide that more often than not come out of the mouths of people who are actually nowhere close to this. They yeah. are not having suicidal ideation, which is why they can speak like this. Yeah. But the dialogue around mental health being like physical health, that it's something we check when you fall off the roof and you break your arm, what do you do? You go to the doctor. So when you fall off your emotional balance beam, and you break something emotionally, what do you do? You go to the doctor. Yeah. And that sh needs to be normalized yeah. in a major way. And the, the discussion around suicidal ideation really needs to be focused on people who are struggling. Yeah. And maybe if 20 people didn't all say, oh my God, that makes me want to kill myself, but one person did, maybe we'd listen harder to that one person yeah because there aren't 19 other voices drowning them out yeah um 
tell me about the dedication of of this book because I I looked at that uh, got it in my hand here with with great interest because I was yeah to the fighters the handholders the caretakers this is for you I see you tell me about that what, what I mean I guess you know that is for all the people I wrote the book for really including myself yeah I'd put myself in the fighter category yeah I fought for Tamara a lot in ways that she couldn't understand yeah you fought with her I fought with her. I fought with my parents. I forced family interventions. I took the little lie and tried to highlight it and make it big because I was worried about it. So there are the fighters. I also watched my mother shuttle her to hundreds of appointments, caretake, love. I watched Judson's mother cater to his every mood and every moment and dying or not dying doesn't make him a perfect person he could still be a pain in the arse and (laughs) you can say ass on this show that's great (laughs) and she still loved him and so to watch people who caretake and who handhold and who fight and how little credit goes into that because at the end of the day then when someone does pass away everyone turns to those mothers and now the focus is not you were such a great caretaker but the focus is around the loss. Oh, now yeah. you're a grieving parent or now you're a... And I think for the moms in my world in particular, they take this on. Yeah, My mother has a lot of feelings around things she could have done differently for Tamara. And, you know, I remember Judson's mother within weeks of the funeral saying... He died of an infection, and I should have known. Uh, His tummy was distended, and he was a little feverish, and I've been caring for him since birth, and I should have identified that. Really, Kathy? uh, (laughs) Kathy. And it's tough, but, you know, it's also just about really, again, being able to say these things. I find it... I just I find it shocking to be sitting here with you talking about this kind of stuff. And I know that when we were when we were planning this uh, this interview, you were like, "Nothing's off the table. We'll talk about everything." And I'm like, "Okay," but I still I, I still it it feels a bit it feels a bit jarring to me. I think I have to re- look at that in myself. But was there anything that was that was challenging for you? For somebody like you who just seems so practical and matter of fact and to write or to confront in the process of of writing this book? I mean, of course. I. Well, I'm reassured to know that. (laughs) I talk about writing with people the way that I talk about performances with actors. And the reality is if what you read on the page or what you see on the screen has made you hurt or cry or laugh or be filled with joy somewhere the creator had to have those emotions in order to share them with you yeah so if it makes you cry on the page it probably made me cry on the page too yeah it's a process it's (laughs) absolutely it's a process interviewing you about this as well okay so as far as though like the ones that were the most difficult for you to write like what were those moments that were most difficult for you to write or difficult for you to I mean I, I think it's hard to have someone in your life that you've lost that you didn't have the connection with that you should have yeah but acknowledging that I was not close to Tamara that she wasn't always nice to me that I wasn't nice to her in return 
again, it's sort of this idea of vulnerability and language and giving other people permission. Yeah. So for me, in the hardest moments of doing this, I also recognized that somewhere I was hopefully giving permission for other people to have these conversations. You've forgiven, like, where's forgiveness in this book then? Like, have you forgiven yourself? Have you, like, is, have 100%. you forgiven Tamara? Like, and I think I reference that in the book, that it's... Yeah. I ha I hold no anger, resentment, or blame to her. Yeah. When she was alive and, you know, really prior to 2015 when we couldn't identify the disease. Yeah. Then you're angry at somebody's behavior that's so hurtful to you or so destructive. But at the point that she was in the psych ward and we had a name and it was psychotic with paranoid delusions... How are you angry at that person? Yeah. You can't be angry at the That's person who has cancer. Yeah. It's a disease, yeah. So that really, for me, the moment of forgiveness sort of comes before the, the act of writing the book. Yeah. Which is really, it's even less forgiveness and more understanding, which for me is a lot of the frame of this book. Like, how do we talk about this? How do we empathize with people in this position how do we begin to label it as a disease and deeply understand that that's what's going on here what i i i mean i i love talking about mental illness like everybody who listens to this podcast knows about you know my depression and my anxiety there's that perkiness i was talking about before <laughs> my my anxiety and my ptsd and my panic disorder um you know so i'm trying to do my part to you know destigmatize uh and conversations around uh, mental illness and but like do, like what responsibility do you think like the the medical profession has like are they failing like in in your in your point of view like I mean the machine is failing right yeah. now there aren't enough resources there isn't enough money I'm sorry I guess we are getting into okay Liz you have to fix the system <laughs> right. which I can't do but there aren't enough resources there isn't enough money this isn't about any individual within the system it is about the machine at large which I think is a very challenging thing to fix I think destigmatizing is the place that it starts and I focus on the language issue because I also think that mental health is a really big generic bucket that yeah, like what does that even mean everybody from the most mild of depression to the place that Tamara was at when she thought aliens were coming and needed a tinfoil hat and that is too big a bucket to put one disease into and so what happens is we start with cancer and then we can break it down it's breast cancer it's prostate cancer it's skin cancer it's stage three it's stage five it's metastasized it's so we've already absorbed all of this language to to differentiate and articulate all of the fine details i say this also about lgbtq plus ia why are all these letters coming well actually this is a good thing yeah we're beginning to really find the language to identify an entire spectrum the spectrum that is such an, it's not a new word and yet in the context of of all of those different letters and within mental health it is absolutely a spectrum but we are also a society that has a hard time talking about anything with nuance you know things have to be either this or that and so here's Liz Levine bringing some nuance to conversations around death and life and mental illness <laughs> yeah I think that that really is is the nail on the head there it, it is about us beginning to be able to parse and differentiate and get specific 
And then you begin to understand who needs what kind of resources yeah. and what kind of help they might need and what kind of support and not just within a professional community but also within a personal community yeah you know we see a lot of stuff on depression that's like well just give me a hug just let me be sad right now just create the space that's fantastic advice when you're dealing with someone with depression it's not great advice if you are dealing with someone with schizophrenia yeah. and yet we're giving the same kind of bucket of yeah. mental health advice to everybody yeah and or ptsd mm -hmm. i mean yeah sometimes i need a hug but if somebody comes and tries to give me a hug unasked no, thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's very uh, that's very challenging. And um, it is about permission too for someone in your position to be able to say that. Yeah. Sometimes I really like hugs, but also because of my PTSD, if I'm not prepared for them, they can be shocking. Yeah. And just the permission to go out in the world and be who you are and tell people what you need to have good mental health. Yeah, I will definitely say though that through the a lot through the medical care that I've received and also mm -hmm. the conversations I've literally had in this room, I've developed my own like language toolkit around this, you know, and then I I have had to like kind of train my family about how to how to deal with me, you know. Um it, it, it makes me wonder about, I mean, you can't, it's hard to give advice, but I'm sure you're going to be called upon to give some advice, not just to the medical system, but to the caretakers and the, the handholders and the fighters, people who are, I mean, it is kind of, it's living in, in the trauma of having to, to be, to be, to love somebody who, who is living with a mental health issue. Like what kind of words of wisdom or advice or, you know, what kind of toolkit of words do you gift to them? I mean, I think my advice is not new or unique. Yeah. It's have patience and be present and open yourself up again. Yeah. I think the gift that maybe I give is the message from the book. It's impossible to be patient all the time. You need somewhere to let your frustrations out. Yeah. There's no such thing as a perfect caregiver, and you don't have to be. Because I also think there's a huge amount of pressure in that direction and expectation that caretakers would know how to deal with you the way a trained nurse knows how to deal with someone in a leukemia war. Yeah. And we don't. And that patience is an impossible thing. You cannot maintain it through a lifetime of someone else's mental health so it really is about opening up the conversation for the person struggling but also the caretaker yeah. the caretaker needs something too and mm -hmm. even if that's just to be seen yeah. and to be heard and to be understood that what they are taking on is a mountain of a task yeah um a little bit of a we're gonna shift gears a little bit mm -hmm. i want to talk about the birds there, yes. there are birds that are on the cover of your book and throughout the book. And in one of the images, there's a bird wearing a party hat sitting on top of a, of a tombstone. Uh, <laughs> tell me about these these illustrations that, that fly throughout the book, why they're there, who created them. Uh, you know, when I started looking at the book coming together in this short story format, especially because some of the stories are a single sentence, mm -hmm. I felt it would be great to have image-based support and worked with a girlfriend of mine, Jack Smith, who I think you've interviewed. I uh, haven't interviewed, but I'm a big fan of Jax's Me work. Me too. For sure. I'm a yeah. huge fan. <laughs> so, you know, we've been writing together for years. We're very close friends. And 
she started to just read pieces of the material and doodle of her own accord because she is a doodler. And as These I started came from doodles, they did. Um, and as we started to sort of plow through the doodles, which were not birds particularly, they were all sorts of things. We found the image that's at the front of the book with yeah. the crow on the stack of books. And as soon as Jack showed me that, I kind of felt that that was our guy. Yeah. That little crow was our guy, <laughs> and he was going to go through this journey with us. And so once we knew that that he was the one, uh, I really handed Jack's every story in the book, and she worked through them one at a time and sort of picked the dozen or so stories that she picked to to have our little guy there helping support yeah what was going on oh i love that i love knowing they come from doodles see i uh, art is everywhere is and art. actually that kind of that kind of brings me to um i'm so i mean yes you have collaborated with jacks before i'm thinking about um turning the tables mm-hmm. uh and and other projects and you know talk the like you know you've been working quite a bit you're very busy in your career the fact that you have written this book in the midst of everything else going on for you is phenomenal um, but but talk to me about the impact like that that Tamara in particular has had on your work how you approach your work that you do in the film industry mm-hmm. you know in in the few years since since she died you know, I'm not sure that the process of the film and TV work is so different. It's the process of interacting with humans that is different. That you watch people a little closer, mm. you listen to them a little more carefully. I just have a, I think I've always had a good reputation for kind of loving my crews and <clears throat> supporting all of my teams. And, you know, now more than ever, I'm just aware we're making movies we're not saving lives yeah and uh that's been the journey for me the biggest shift around this is that i've spent my career able to put in the center or the spotlight a project or a celebrity or a somebody who isn't me so when a microphone is stuck in my face i can say look at kira sedgwick exactly yeah I really get away with that and say, look at the project, and and now, you know, this is uh, about me. So yeah, that, I mean, I, I have just shift. turned over the book. Uh, we have um, Douglas Copeland, a best-selling author of J-Pod, which you did, you worked on the, the series. Correct. Uh, and this is what Douglas Copeland has to say, if you don't mind me reading off the back. Um, Liz has spent years working with writers when she should have been the writer all along. What a surprising and fascinating leap right out of the gate. I love that. Do you, do you think that this is a a, a topic, a, a feeling, a subject that you are going to explore in other work? I mean, because I know you're writing now. Yeah, bringing I mean, work to the to the screen. You know? I am. I'm back to producing a, a new series this coming spring Woo-hoo! that is not written by me. Okay. Um, but you know, I think that sure it informs everything that I do going forward and. I'm not sure that mental health is the zone that I will live in forever, but I think telling stories is about understanding characters. Right. Understanding characters is about understanding yourself. Yeah. And nothing will do that for you, like writing a 300-page book on yourself. <laughs> <laughs> we all should have to go through that process at some point. Um, how well do you think Hollywood is doing 
uh, with uh, presenting, you know, mental health on screen. Like I, I remember in my youth, um, the moment that you know Mary Hartman had her her breakdown on television and Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, you know, and then like MASH did a pretty good job of looking at things. But like there were those were kind of the outliers. It's mm-hmm. more and more in recent years, you know, and Joker being a, a big one that people are talking about. But like, you know, what, how do you think Hollywood's doing? And, and, you know, why does that matter? I mean, it matters because seeing ourselves reflected in stories we read or watch is a massive way that we self-identify and begin to understand and accept ourselves. Yeah. How they're doing is, you know, a C minus. Um, wow. A Joker kind of story is an extreme situation. Yeah. And I think people are set up to absorb the stories of extreme situations. Yeah. And what they don't tell as well is the story of a girl born into a middle upper class family who's smart who goes to private school who's university educated who's successful who jumps off her balcony at 3 40 a.m these are the you know we're missing these sorts of pieces and so i think we're also missing just the kid who can't get out of bed yeah. You know, um, so again, it's like parsing the nuances of what it means to show mental health. Uh, to in a live with way. mental illness. I mean, I'll say, yeah. so CBC's coroner has done a really wonderful job, I think. Uh, we have no dogs in that race, but like they've done a great job because they're lead, the lead character. Yeah, she's the head coroner and mm-hmm. yeah, she's a widow and yeah, she has panic attacks and she takes pills and like, yeah, she has a hot boyfriend. Like there's like the whole, yeah. you know, it shows that it's just one part of her life, which is it is for a lot of us, right? Correct. So I, I remember watching that and being like, oh, I do that too sometimes when I'm, you know, I, I'll, I'll have an out of van and then go and have a interview. Mm-hmm. I didn't do that today, but I have right. done that. <laughs> you guys have heard that. I have done that because that's just part of, that's part of life sometimes. Yeah. So it is. I haven't seen the coroner yet and I am looking forward to it because yeah. people have been speaking highly about it. But, you know, what's interesting about Hollywood and the film business and this mental health conversation is not just what's on the screen, but also what's behind it. And for me right now, in my dialogue, I'm struggling a lot with the idea of excellence. And mental health is about safe spaces. It's about creating boundaries. Maybe it's about not answering your phone after 5 p.m. Or maybe it's about really going on vacation for two weeks. And yet, in the business we live and work in, excellence is about the opposite. It's about you being accessible all the time. It's about you being reactive and quick in the moment that things happen. It's about not taking your phone out of your hand and not putting that thing down. Pushing through, feeling the discomfort, pushing through it. Correct. And I'd never really thought about it sort of before this moment and before tomorrow because I'm blessed with very strong mental health and a, just a strength to keep going, keep going, keep going all the time. Yeah. But when I really started to think about it around other people, I realized there's a big concern here. Ah, well, I, I mean, and and I will I will say to our listeners, like, and I mean, you guys heard that off right off the top, we did have a content warning that we were going to be talking about uh, these these topics today. But uh, we, you know, there there are 
a lot of different service organizations and and resources out there for people who are you know uh, experiencing any kind of mental health crisis on the spectrum. I know that the there is a multi union group called Call Time Mental Health that serves the the film and television industry, and we we will put a, a link to that website in the footnotes for this but you know I also feel like I the reason that I talk about it so much is is to help people not feel so alone with it as well that you know like you you can yeah you can have everything that I have and and still have a podcast and you know to kind of normalize that so I just want I just um sorry to to, I mean it's weird though because somehow it also seems so trite to be like you know help is available and ask for help because often like I you know when I uh had a a massive depression and and breakdown just over a year ago I had been one of those like yeah go and ask for help and last thing I wanted to do in that moment was to to ask for help I felt like I didn't deserve it you know we don't we're can often be lost in a in a fog but I just I mean hopefully this is piercing through the end of repeated voices are piercing through that you're not alone you know that there is you reach out your hand and if somebody will take it and and the storm will pass Yep. eventually but man it's hard to talk about that without falling into cliches huh mm-hmm. and it's hard to talk about that optimistically yeah because i don't think the system is excellent yeah and that's a tough one because i wish there were a better net to catch people yeah I, I mean and also the fact that when you live in it as well it's not like i'm i mean yeah i get help and yeah i have a support system mm-hmm. i'm not cured though it comes back and I do have I have people in my life who get really frustrated you know and and I've had the you know you gotta buck up and everything's so good right now and it's like but I still this is still how I feel and what people need to learn to say is not you've got to buck up but I as a caretaker and someone who loves you am frustrated right now I'm frustrated for you that you're struggling with this I'm frustrated that I can't break through it. Yeah. And I need to go for a walk because I'm frustrated, but also I love you. Yeah. And that's sort of the duality of the language that we're really struggling to put together right now. Yeah. You know, I find it really interesting that I have spent the last five minutes talking so much about myself. And I just, I feel like that's one of the things that you've done with this book is you're opening the door for people to think about mental health and and grief and and pain and loss and all of these kind of things like what kind of feedback have you received you know so far from people who've read the book is there anything that's surprised you is there is there anything from the reactions that that has surprised you because i i said before i hit record you're gonna have a lot of people telling yeah you know dumping their stories on you as you as you move to promote this book you know i think both kira and tegan really spoke out right away about their own lives. So we're talking about Kira Cedric and Tegan of Tegan Tegan and Sarah. Sarah, Correct. (laughs) Um, That this sort of was helpful in charting a path. That it was acceptable to do all the things I do in the book. From yell and scream and cry to do drugs to laugh my face off. Yeah. At inappropriate moments that this was all acceptable. Yeah. So I'm loving that response. You know, I am trying to encourage people that this book is encouraging you to talk about your mental health, but it's not necessarily encouraging you to talk about your mental health to me. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a fine distinction there that we're working our way through. Fine, Liz, (laughs) I won't talk about it anymore. Not you, but the random Twitter, you know, I think... 
what I realized when I released the Easter Bunny article oh, is yeah. that the people out there that I don't know, you do begin to get everyone else's stories. And yeah. sometimes they're about people in their lives and their families. But I also have individuals who reach out to me to say, I want to end my own life right now. Mm. And so that's not necessarily something I feel super equipped to deal with. And yeah. I have an answer and some suicide prevention hotlines and some resources that I that I send back right away. But I yeah. think in releasing this and over the next few months, that is probably going to be a space that I have to work through and, and figure out in a lot of ways. Yeah. Liz Levine. We could talk all day. Uh, we could talk about me all day too, uh, as you as you realize. Uh, because it, I mean, I, I thank you for for writing this book, for starting this this conversation, for giving people an entire alphabet of words with which to talk about this. Liz, where can well, first of all, where can our our listeners find the book? Uh, everywhere as of January 28th. So yes. chapters, Indigo, Odin Books in Vancouver. There is a list of 100 resellers on the Simon & Schuster website. Fantastic. Uh, and available yeah. before then on Amazon and will continue to be. So it definitely, Simon & Schuster has got it out there, as it were. Fantastic. And uh, perhaps you could also give me your list of resources then, and we'll include that in the footnotes for this yeah, for this episode. Well, thank you. Thank Again. you. And thank you to our listeners. Thank you for joining us for this very important conversation. Please like and subscribe. Leave us a review if you are so inclined. They help us find even more listeners. You can find us at www.yvrscreenscene.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at YVRScreenscene. The YVRScreenscene podcast is hosted and executive produced by me, Sabrina Furminger. And it's edited by Simon Furminger. Special thanks to Mariana Furminger for recording our Patreon ad and to Tyson Braddock and Paul Furminger for family business, for technical support, and to Dane Devalet for the original music. Wavir Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic film and television scene. And cut. This ad begins with a story about an important largely forgotten piece of Hollywood North history, the fish flight. In the 1980s, the fish flight was an early morning flight from Vancouver that delivered fresh fish to Los Angeles before the start of the business day. These were the early days of Hollywood North, before digital deliveries and fast transfer speeds, and the pioneers of the Vancouver film industry began loading up the fish flight with film reels so Hollywood execs could review the footage shot on the previous day. The fish flight was also one of the building blocks of the visual effects and animation mecca that is present-day Vancouver. And Fish Flight Entertainment builds on this legacy. Fish Flight Entertainment serves the games, film, and television industries. We remember the days of the fish flight and attack our projects with the same passion as those pioneering days of yore. We believe in jumping off the cliff and building our wings on the way down. And who knows? That old fish with improvised wings may even fly. Learn more about Fish Flight Entertainment at fishflightentertainment.com. That's fishflightentertainment.com.